Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our most recent podcast. Um, a list of other podcasts, and, and then there's some excellent ones on our website, can be seen at www.yalerudcenter.org. Our guest today is Robert Berkowitz, a physician and psychiatrist who is psychiatrist-in-chief um, and the chair of child psychiatry at uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, Dr. Berkowitz uh, got his medical training at the University of Connecticut, his psychiatric residency there. He then trained in child psychiatry at the Yale Child Study Center and then spent some time on a fellowship at Stanford University and then came to the University of Pennsylvania where he's been now for many years there. Um, his, his work uh, covers a variety of areas, but most notably for this discussion is his work on childhood obesity. And Dr. Berkowitz, for many years, has done work on the etiology and the risk factors for the development of childhood obesity, doing work even with newborn infants and their feeding practices, all the way up to the work he's done most recently on the treatment of overweight teenagers. Uh, there's a real need for this kind of work because, as, as is the case for most medical issues, there's a lot more attention paid to adults who have the problem than children. Um, but in addition to that, his work is very innovative and at the cutting edge of the field. So, uh, Bob, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to have you here. So let's start off talking about childhood obesity in general. How big of a problem is it? As you know, we are in an epidemic of childhood obesity in the United States. We uh, were at about 5% of children being overweight in 1980, and here we are 17% or more in 2008. So in this very brief period of time, there's been more than a tripling of obesity among children and adolescents. And along with that has been, uh, unfortunately, uh, an increase in the numbers of illnesses that these children have, including, uh, for the first time, the development of type 2 diabetes uh, in the population of children. 25 years ago, it was unheard of. Now it's 30. And called adult onset And diabetes. are called adult onset diabetes. And now we have uh, overweight uh, youth who have obesity and diabetes, uh, 30 to 40 percent of whom have type 2 diabetes uh, now in our diabetes clinics. So 30 to 40 percent of kids in diabetes clinics now have what used to be called adult onset That's diabetes. That's correct. And how early, I mean, how, how young are some of these kids who are developing diabetes? The youngest kids we see, we have a big treatment trial going on at the age of 10. 10. So they would come in actually uh, quite ill. And uh, you would think they had type 1 diabetes. And in fact, uh, the endocrinologists do this antibody test to distinguish between the two forms. And sure enough, the overweight child is at much greater risk for diabetes, uh, uh, which is a, obviously a serious illness related to heart disease and stroke. And, uh, and the, the, most of the type 2 diabetes is caused by diet, physical inactivity. It's entirely and related to the weight gain of the child so that if the children were not overweight, they'd be at much lower risk for developing diabetes. That's a remarkable uh, fact that you just presented. If you um, project ahead in time for a child who's diabetic at 10, what, what's likely to happen? Well, this is a very serious problem. In adults, we know that there's a gap between the time of diagnosis and the onset of secondary medical problems, so that adult diabetic probably has 10 to 20 years before 
heart attacks and strokes and cardiovascular disease, neurologic problems start to ensue. We anticipate that's going to happen for the adolescent. So if we have a 15 or 18-year-old who's very overweight and who unfortunately has type 2 diabetes, we anticipate 10 to 20 years from that point in time, so while they're in their 30s, they may well suffer from the same heart disease, hypertension, strokes that we see in adults. So we, it's, uh, the, the, the seriousness uh, cannot be exaggerated. I mean, it's remarkable to think that a, a person in their 30s would be at risk for things like stroke, given, the, given all this. But it, it shows how important early intervention is and prevention of the problem. Um, what If one had to sort of in a nutshell describe why there's so many more children overweight now than used to be the case? What would you say? Well, it's clearly an epidemic. So again, 5% in 1980, 17 or so percent in 2008. It clearly can't just be genetic. Genes are a component. We know that weight problems, unfortunately, do run in families to some degree, but you can't explain more than tripling of the prevalence uh, to genetic factors alone. So uh, much of the work that you and other folks have done has looked at environmental factors, and we think that there are uh, clear factors. Uh, one is uh, food policy and food production in the country, uh, fast food industry, the addition of uh, uh, sweetened foods into the culture, uh, sweetened sodas, sweetened uh, foods uh, advertised and promoted uh, to children who don't have the capacity to make those decisions, by the way. And we can talk about that in a minute. Should we really not allow that kind of marketing? Uh, we certainly have stopped it when it comes to tobacco. Uh, in addition, uh, the amounts of food are very large that Americans consume compared to Europeans. So portion size has gone up dramatically, and the promotion of the culture of overeating has, has gone up, uh, I think, uh, which is a concern. Simultaneously, we live in a high-tech environment, so people, the kids don't walk to school as much. It's not as safe in inner cities for them to walk. They live too far. City planning hasn't done this when I was a kid. I used to walk to grammar school, as it was called in those days, and I'd walk home for lunch. And so I'd have two walks, two round trips when I, until the uh, end of the eighth grade, if you can believe. There was no cafeteria in the in the elementary schools, you went home and you had lunch at home. And uh, there was very little busing. Uh, the neighborhood schools were in the neighborhood. Well, that's a huge difference from uh, what happens for kids now who spend a lot of time in cars. So and it's then, really a double whammy then. The food right. situation has become worse and the, the physical activity has as well. Are there certain population groups that are especially vulnerable to these conditions and more likely to develop childhood obesity? Well, uh, uh, it's important to understand that all populations are affected by the epidemic, but there are some populations that are at greater risk, and those clearly are uh, families uh, who might not have the uh, income levels, might live in inner cities, might not have uh, the educational opportunities or the healthcare opportunities to understand the importance in those inner cities, the ability to purchase healthier food products is, 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 is more difficult. Uh, the fruits and vegetables are much more expensive, not available, so the lack of availability of healthier foods. Uh, there's been enormous marketing of uh, uh, fast food industry to these populations, uh, and so they are consuming uh, calorically dense food, high-calorie foods, high-sweetened foods, high-fat foods, uh, much more. Simultaneously, TV has become a babysitter 
for many families because, because of, of safety, right? Right. There are, uh, many neighborhoods are in, in the big cities are relatively unsafe. It's not like uh, families can let the kids go out and play a lot uh, as much as when I was a boy. And... Um, uh, or that may be uh, available in a suburban setting. So the kids are home. There are much more time on computers or TVs uh, watching and so forth. And so it's really a double whammy for the kids. You know, you've reminded me that um, there are people speculating now that the spike in food prices that's existed in the U.S. and around the world because of in- increasing energy costs and the, the uh, corn to ethanol conversion and things like that that have pushed up food prices in a lot of places may help the problem of obesity because it would cost more to buy food and you'd think people would be less able to buy the food that would make them overweight. But in fact, consistent with what you just said, it could very well make the problem worse because the poor then will be especially driven toward foods that are the cheapest and those tend to be the processed foods highest in calories, highest in salt, highest in processing and things like that. So it's not a problem. It's likely to just turn around on its own, and it really argues for heroic uh, intervention, I know. So you've been especially involved with treatment and what can be done in clinical settings. And be, and I'd love to hear your opinion on what kind of treatments can be effectively used with overweight children and adolescents. But before we do that, I heard you mention some numbers about the size of the health system that you're involved with at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, how many children that health system covers in total. And then by just doing some arithmetic, you can figure out how many overweight children that system would have. Would you mind sharing those numbers? Sure. Because it's very telling if you think about just one health system in this country, how big the problem can be. Well, we're fortunate in Philadelphia to have a wonderful children's hospital. I can brag about it a little bit, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It is uh, 155 years old and uh, is really now a health system. So not only is there a main hospital, there are 45 or so primary care practices and eight specialty care practices for the whole region, not just in Philadelphia, but uh, a radius of uh, 60 miles, so many practices. And in that system, there are more than 300,000 children in the primary care network, and then probably another 250,000, 300,000 children in the specialty care network, uh, specialty care network work that come from other primary care docs in the area. So we touch the lives of probably 600, 700,000 kids a year. Uh, so, uh, so as we all sat around trying to figure out uh, what the obesity epidemic looked like, we were fortunate because we also have an electronic health record and we could relatively easily get the heights and weights and ages and obviously and from slightly different from boys and girls figure out who had weight problems from our data. And lo and behold, just like I mentioned, the 17% holds, probably higher in the inner cities, more like 20, 23% of children, unfortunately, uh, have obesity as a problem. And and uh, we began as a system to uh, try uh, to develop techniques that might train our practitioners to be both sensitive to the issue in a positive way and promote the health of the children by providing uh, some uh, simple-to-use techniques, health, uh, health education, encouraging families to uh, promote physical activity, and cutting down on screen time, and eating more fruits and vegetables, and to be mindful of portion size and uh, cut down on sweetened uh, products as well as high-fat products. And so those trainings have actually now 
uh, gone on for about 300 of our physicians mm. in the health system. And so they have a uh, toolbox, if you will, uh, to on standard office visits mentioned, by the way, because they, they, it's cool now. They get their the, the body mass index of each child and where they are and where they have been, and they can mention for even 30 seconds or a minute when you have 10 minutes per visit, you can only spend so much time. But at least the culture is such to create a healthy, sensitive and, uh, contact about uh, health behavior and health promotion. That's also pervading our whole workforce. So we hope to, by engendering these uh, behaviors actually in the workforce itself, that it will uh, have some uh, effect within the in the uh, in the clinic as well. Simultaneously, we're partnering with uh, other agencies and the school systems and the uh, YMCA's and uh, in the community to try to partner for health promotion. You know, I know you're not the, the the type of person who would brag about how innovative this is. So let me do it. Okay. Um, I mean, it's really <laughs> quite remarkable that in a, a healthcare system of this size, that you've been able to change the culture in a way that would create a system-wide program for a childhood obesity. That's very impressive and I think quite unique. And I'm impressed with the fact that you got this accomplished, first of all. Second of all, that uh, all this training has gone on for the various practitioners. And the third, something that, that you've been sensitive enough about putting in is part of the program on sensitivity, on weight sensitivity. Yes. Can you describe what that's about and why you would do that? Well, we know that uh, the overweight child uh, uh, faces a great deal of prejudice and stigma in our culture, uh, and that uh, uh, this is terribly unfortunate. It's bad enough to have a problem with weight, then to be picked on or teased is a major problem that the kids tell us about. I remember the first treatment group I ever ran with the teens, uh, this is so uh, many years ago, and I had my nice program of behavior modification all set, and I sat down with a group of teens, and they uh, changed the whole program. <laughs> they started talking about how angry they were about being mistreated. And they had story after story of being teased and harassed and, and uh, really uh, given a hard time about their weight. And so we built into the program uh, uh, sort of an assertiveness training component where the kids learn to feel good about themselves regardless of their weight and where they learn how to manage people who might not be uh, so nice to them. And uh, uh, so uh, from that work and that clinical work, uh, a whole group of us who are uh, our committee really developed a sensitivity training experience for healthcare professionals to understand the biases and the stigmas about uh, weight and uh, in addition to other biases, of course. But certainly a sensitivity training is part of the package and it really has helped a great deal. Yeah, I'm really happy to hear you talk about that because it, it's very easy to think of a problem like childhood obesity as statistics and numbers, and here are the people per, percentage of people affected, and here's the risk for disease, but it all sounds pretty academic. But when you stop and, and talk about cases like you're doing, like how tormented some of these kids are by others, and even their own parents in some cases, yes, um, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Well, it is uh, just that, and uh, the depression rate is, is moderately high in the kids, and we pick up a lot of depression, uh, and we try to help them for their feelings of uh, sadness and depression, as well as their weight problems in our programs. And uh, so I think it's very important for people to understand that 
the overweight child is really a, a child who uh, should not be uh, stigmatized, uh, but should be supported and helped. And so not only we have done uh, a lot of this training for our staff, but we've also uh, made sure that the facility is designed to uh, have comfortable chairs and, uh, and the staff is uh, helpful. So when a child or an adolescent gets on the scale, it's a very positive experience. Uh, this has not always been the case. You can imagine uh, scenarios where uh, teens have been sort of castigated for their weight problems or weight gain. And what happens then? The kid never comes back. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so nice to hear about this compassion and approach. And it must make a world of difference to both the kids and their families. Let's talk a little bit about your own research and yes. some of the studies that you've done on how to best treat overweight uh, children and adolescents. Um, I know you've you've done a lot of work using behavior therapy approaches and then uh, layered onto that some very interesting studies using medications. So tell us about those studies and what you found. Well, the the programs that we have uh, done research on are uh, family-based programs, so parents are involved with their adolescents. And it's a very, first, sort of a positive psychology approach where we try to support the teens, support the parents uh, uh, in developing uh, new health habits. And sometimes they come in not feeling very positive. They can feel pretty stressed, sometimes distressed, sometimes downright angry at each other. And we try to help them maintain a more positive attitude, and they're here to get some help. And that pervades the whole program and strengthens, we hope, the relationships with the teens and their parents. And then uh, we, step by step, gradually encourage uh, healthier uh, habits. So it's not a diet. It's really healthier habits where people learn to set goals about calories and how many calories they're consuming and how much food they're eating and the size of the portion. So it's a single portion rather than multiple portions. Uh, Here in America, we love huge portions. So instead of huge portions, just eating enough to feel satisfied is really the goal. And the quality of the food is good. More fruits and vegetables and low-fat products, milk uh, products that are lower fat in nature and uh, lean poultry or beef products or uh, uh, and a certain amount of sweets and junk food, but in a moderate amount. So it's not like a, a program of deprivation. It's a program of, of learning how to be moderate and how to manage what society is throwing at the kids. Uh, that's been very helpful. So if we had, I remember one kid who was very successful in our program. He Every time we'd go to a fast food, he just loved to go to this one fast food restaurant. He would order his double cheeseburger and his big you know, cola and his big fries. And I asked him, I said, well, why do you get the fries? And he says, well, they asked me if I want fries. And I said, well, you know, you can say no. I said, I can? <laughs> I said, do you really want the fries? He said, well, actually, I don't really want the fries. I'm really going for, the, for that double cheeseburger. And I said, well, think about that. And so and what about the cola? I says, well, I actually don't really want the cola either. And I said, how'd you end up with a gigantic cola? He said, well, they asked me if I wanted the bigger size. And I said, of course, yes. So this shows you the influence of the marketing on a poor kid. This kid was 13 at the time. So uh, we problem solved. And he says, well, I guess I could have a big water because I really don't care about the cola. And I really don't need the fries, but I really need that d- double burger. Well, he cut his calorie counts right in half. That's, so that, so you have a very skills-oriented program. Exactly. Not a diet. Um, you know, but, but you're teaching them life skills that then can apply to, to their home situation, which sounds really nice. 
So as I understand, that that's sort of the baseline program. You that's do right. that with everybody. And right. then you've tried using medications in addition to so that. So what we found was uh, many kids do okay, but they might not lose as much weight as I, as a physician, might think might be healthier for them. And so we've tried to do research to see if we can uh, increase the amount of weight loss. And one strategy that we took from our adult studies was the use of uh, medications in a very scientifically safe way to see if they were helpful. And uh, one medicine is uh, Cybutramine. It's produced by Abbott. And we were fortunate to get a federal grant from the National Institutes of Health to study this in uh, um, about 2000. And we saw that when we added that to our behavior modification program that, in fact, we doubled the weight loss. And the side effects were uh, modest. Uh, one has to be concerned about blood pressure with this particular medication, but when monitored carefully, uh, I can uh, adjust the dose so that the dose is uh, okay for the great majority, uh, might be 5 or 10 percent, have to stop the medication. seems to be reasonably uh, a safe medication and effective for about 60 or 70 percent of the youth and doubles the weight loss that they obtain. And this is FDA approved at age 16 now. And the, and the, uh, the, the degree of weight loss that you're able to reduce using this approach uh, what kind of medical benefits occur? Well, there are considerable medical benefits. One is that the risk factors for the onset of diabetes go uh, much improved, are much improved. So, for instance, what we call insulin levels. So insulin is that hormone in the body that is affected by gaining weight. And if we bring it down with weight loss, it cuts down the chances of developing uh, diabetes. So there are dramatic reductions, about a... Uh, a 12% reduction in the uh, insulin levels in a couple of studies that we've done, whereas the placebo group, the kids who were taking the pill without medication, their insulin levels actually did not go down. So uh, th that's exciting. I think the other thing is that the good cholesterol, we all hear about cholesterol as a risk factor for heart disease. Uh, the good cholesterol, what we call HDL cholesterol, went up compared to not changing in the uh, placebo group. And the uh, the bad cholesterol, LDL, went down more. Impressive. So we see That's some very nice, and it's these are directly related to weight loss. So we know that the, the kids who lost the greater amount of weight had greater improvements in all these measures. So uh, the, the take-home message is that weight management is important, that they're potential improvements in risk factors. Many of these kids are still overweight, but they're not as overweight. So, uh, and they're happy about it. Their satisfaction levels are high. Their self-esteem levels improve. So uh, we, see, we treat some very overweight uh, adolescents, and they, they lose about 10 to 15% of their weight, and they're still overweight, but they're happy, they're healthier, and their self-esteem is high uh, from the data that we have, but they're not normal-weighted yet. Right. And that's okay. We know that uh, adolescents who, are, who lose 5, 10, 15% of their uh, weight, in fact, will achieve uh, probably 80 or 90% of the health benefits, and that's, that's a good thing. Do you think the, the weight losses are well-maintained? Well, well in the studies we've done so far, uh, the, probably the most effective uh, component of uh, medication, Sambutramine in particular, is for weight loss maintenance. Uh, so that, uh, that uh, one of the troubles that we have seen with behavior modification alone, behavior change alone, is that 
we can induce weight loss, but many people will have trouble keeping the weight off. This has been uh, an area that I've done work in adults as well as in adolescents, and the maintenance of weight loss is really one of the uh, uh, hard things to do. Medication, the role of medication may be greater actually in the maintenance of weight loss than perhaps in, in, in the induction of weight loss. And that's certainly what our data would show uh, with subutramine adolescents. Is there much controversy about using medications with adolescents? Well, there's controversy, I think, about weight loss medicines in general, especially around safety. So we, uh, all our studies have not only been um, uh, partly, uh, have been partly funded by NIH, but they've all been uh, Food and Drug Administration, FDA trial related, and we work closely with FDA around safety monitoring and access to safety data. And so I think that's important, all these trials. And so um, I think uh, uh, clearly uh, uh, we think of the old FenFen as a good example of a drug that uh, we thought initially in adults. Uh, there were never trials of adolescents with FenFen, but with adults, we we um, uh, finally had some safety data. Unfortunately, we uh, showed them wasn't safe, and so I think we have to be very careful in and uh, studying these drugs from a toxicity point of view. And I would propose that we need to do much more research uh, with all drugs in uh, kids. Uh, recall that only 25% of drugs used in all of pediatrics are FDA approved for their use. Not just in obesity. Only 25%. Only 25%. So 75% of the drugs that we prescribe for kids are not approved by FDA. What does that mean? That means physicians hopefully use good judgment about what they prescribe, but there has not been the push for the pharmaceutical field to do more pediatric trials until the last uh, few years where there's been some incentive for that. I think if any new drugs come out that look promising, pediatric trials have to be designed early on. Because once the drugs come to market, they will be used uh, in pediatric populations. So having the data is going to be very important. So I know you keep your, your ear to the wind, and you're you know one of the foremost experts on medical treatments for obesity. Um, are there things in the pipeline in the pharmaceutical industry that I know some of this might be proprietary information yeah. to the companies, but and I, I might even ask it in a, a more general way. But how optimistic are you that there will be? drugs that will come along that will make a substantial difference in weight? Well, there are um, a number of companies that are, have very robust research uh, endeavors looking for drugs to help obesity. First, let me say obesity is an illness. This is a serious problem with serious consequences. We're talking about diabetes, heart disease, uh, sleep apnea, uh, depression, many other consequences. So as a target for drug industry, I think it's quite an important and valid target. Uh, and, um, you know, I am somewhat optimistic, probably less so than I was yesterday, uh, to tell you that there are drugs in the pipeline. Uh, there was a new class of drugs that we had more hopes for. Uh, these are the cannabinoid drugs, the endocannabinoids, and there are a couple companies that have them. Unfortunately, uh, they, were, uh, they have been associated with anxiety or mood side effects in a small but significant percentage of patients, and it's hard to predict who that those folks are. So I think those classes of compounds we had greater hopes for, and I think we will not see them come to market at this point. The good news is that we have a system that detects those kinds of side effects in the clinical trials. Bad news is probably the, that, the, that mechanism is probably not going to be as effective, worthwhile as we had hoped it to be. There are numerous other uh, potential compounds in development 
it's always hard to tell what's going what's gonna to hit. So I think the, the challenge for people in the pharmaceutical industry is going to be to find a new compound that is also safe, and that's, uh, that's true for all disease. But it's been particularly difficult, I think, in obesity drugs. Um, with adults, <clears throat> the, uh, the use of surgery is becoming more and more popular for the most serious cases of obesity, and in fact can be a life-saving enterprise for some people. Um, I know there's a good bit of controversy about the potential use of surgery in younger people. What's your opinion on that? Well, surgery is uh, would never have been thought about had it not been for this epidemic of obesity in kids. So it wasn't until this last 20 years that we saw kids who we would even think of as surgical candidates. Uh, the one trial, one of our trials, a third of the kids are at 300 pounds or more. And this is a national trial. A third of the children. A third of the children. <coughs> on a national trial. So. National trial. Wow. So is surgery going to be the answer to the epidemic of childhood obesity? No, uh, because that's really going to come more from, I think, long-term public health interventions and uh, so forth. Uh, on the other hand, we're faced with children who have diabetes and uh, obstructive sleep apnea, which can be dangerous, of course, and cardiovascular illness and lipid problems and orthopedic problems. What's one to do when you have a child who's 350, 400 pounds or more? And uh, so uh, the pediatric surgeons, who are bariatric surgeons as well, to their credit, have begun some trials to look at the safety and efficacy of, of these. And I think at this point, I would say it's experimental. One, one ought to enlist in a clinical trial where the supervision is very high in these clinical trials. So in one clinical trial, uh, two surgeons are present, two pediatric surgeons who are bariatric surgeons are present during the surgery. So I'm feeling more comfortable even as I say it uh, because there is unfortunately in the adult trials with the major uh, open operations a mortality rate of 1% to 2% in the first year in adults with a large uh, open bariatric surgery. The uh, uh, the bypass-type surgeries, uh, and uh, would not want to subject uh, that to an adolescent who's that overweight. I've uh, uh, changed uh, my position on this to some degree now that we have an alternative, which is the lap band, which is an adjustable device that takes about an hour to insert. The European adult trials look very positive. Uh, the mortality rate there is only one in a thousand, as high as that can be, but it's still low given how seriously overweight the adults are, and it's a removable device. So I think the lap band presents itself as a nice alternative to a major surgery, and uh, my own op opinion as a non-surgeon is that uh, the morbidity mortality rates are much lower with lap bands, and, and those kinds of experiments ought to be uh, proceeded. If I had a patient who required surgery medically, I'd choose the lap band, knowing what I know today, prior to any big surgery. Well, thank you. Um, you, you, point about, you point out about the importance of preventing the problem using public health interventions, but also treating the problem effectively, because so many kids are affected, and they're here, they're now, yes. they need help. And so it's wonderful that you and others have been doing such good research on this to try to help refine our treatment techniques, make them more effective, more safe, et cetera. So thank you for on, you know, on behalf of the field for all your fine work, but also thank you for coming to join us today. I very much appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, you may listen to this, this podcast at www.yalerudcenter.org, but of course our website has lots of other information and resources available, including a free email newsletter, a list of other podcasts, and a variety of resources. Thank you very much.